Amen. You guys can have a seat. If you're here for the first time with us, we're, uh, we're so thankful that you've decided to worship with us today. We really hope and pray that New City would be a place and a people where we would just continually find rest in Jesus, that we would encourage one another to find rest in Christ. You know, today we're in week two of our Scandalous Cradle series where we're looking specifically at the women in the genealogy of Matthew 1. And there are five women in the genealogy to Jesus. There's Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, the wife of Uriah, which is Bathsheba, and then Mary, the mother of Jesus. Now, we just finished Joshua, uh, where we saw the story of Rahab, so we're kind of skipping over her. And last week, we focused on Sarah, which was Abraham's wife, where God promised the nations and kings would come from her, seeing that God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 was also God's promise to Sarah. Well, let's just say this week it starts to get kind of wild with Tamar and Bathsheba. When I was a kid, you know, my my great-grandmother, she had a really large Bible uh, that sat on an old antique side table in a sitting room that us kids, we just weren't really allowed to go into and sit in. Um, And me and my brother and sister, we used to kind of joke and think that if we opened up that Bible, uh, that angels would just start flying out. Like thinking that that Bible was like extra, extra holy. Now, if I think we scan the landscape of our culture, something like this would be the general thought when it came to opening the Bible. That this holy book would be filled with extremely holy things, which, yes, this is absolutely true. Like, I want to affirm that the Bible is a holy book about an extremely holy God, but what we'll see today is that it's also a holy book with extremely unholy people. And when we start to get into the genealogy of Jesus, you start to go down kind of this roster of names in the genealogy and think, like, Jesus came from that person? No, couldn't be. Right? No, and, and then that person? No, of course not. And then you kind of keep going, and then you just stop and gasp, and you kind of just slowly put your hand over your mouth in disbelief and think, what? No. And you just kind of walk away, just kind of scratching your head. And today we're looking at two of those stories in the genealogy of Jesus where you notice, oh, wait. The people in the Bible, they're not exactly saints. Like, they're not so holy and angelic. You know, these stories are scandalous. These are the stories that kind of make you squirm. Well, at the same time, New City, there are these stories that provide us with a strange sense of hope. Because as we'll see as our main idea today, you know, as many as the old hymn uh, says, that God's grace is greater than our sin. Yo, we've got two stories today that are going to drive us in that direction. This is one of those uh, keystone phrases, God's grace is greater than our sin, that has stuck with me, that I say often, and I need to repeat often, because grace is something that we all need daily. You know, I don't know how you come in today, maybe overwhelmed about your life, maybe a mistake or a string of mistakes, or maybe you have a wayward child or a family member or a close friend that is just struggling and caught up in just all these struggles. If that's the case, today is for you. Or maybe what I'm guessing is true for many of us, including myself, is that we each have things in our life, maybe small, maybe big, we're, we're fighting to overcome, and we just keep kind of falling short. Like maybe you've just been struggling to read your Bible and spend time, daily time with the Lord. Or maybe parenting or school or work or ministry or relationship expectations for yourself, uh, and you're just, not, you're just not hitting the mark. Or maybe there's like a repetitive, destructive habit you're trying to get rid of, and it's been way harder than you may want to admit. Whatever it is, today is the day that reminds us of the beauty of God's grace. New City, we have, an incredibly, uh, we have some incredibly scandalous stories today, two of them. But these scandalous sc- stories with Judah and David, 
uh, Tamar and Bathsheba, God's scandalous grace, it will come shining through. And just as a fair warning, y'all, we're going to be all over the Bible today, from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And so I want you to think of today kind of like a helicopter ride uh, where we'll take off in the book of Genesis. We're going to scan over the book of Genesis. We're going to land in Genesis chapter 38 for about 10 minutes. And then we're going to get back in that helicopter and quickly scan over a large portion of the Old Testament and then land in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. And then we're going to get back in and keep moving, finally landing at the end in the book of Revelation. So we've got a big journey today um, with quite a bit of uh, teaching and storytelling, kind of at a high level over the entire Bible. And so, listen, if you get lost at any point along the way, the reoccurring theme will be that life is messy, our sin is great, but God's grace, it's greater. Like that's the reoccurring theme today. And so we're going to gauge our minds pretty heavily uh, while teaching a large storyline of the Bible. But if you've been around here long enough, you're also, you also know that we're going to engage our hearts for just everyday uh, life. And we've done this year after year so far around Christmas just to show the entire story of the Bible. Because as we continue to scan the Bible throughout this series, we'll be reminded of why Jesus came down to earth, seeing the importance of Christmas And so kind of our helicopter ride across the Bible, we'll have three landing spots today, seeing number one, Judah's scandal with Tamar in Genesis 38. Then we're going to look at uh, David's scandal with Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. And then number three, God's scandalous grace, which is going to be more in the New Testament. And so while we're looking at these two stories, um, y'all, we're going to see way more than two just scandalous stories. I want us to think of these two stories kind of like two puzzle pieces in a much larger picture. You know, something we need to understand about the Bible It is both very uh, simple and also very complex. Like it's simple enough to where we can teach our kids and they can understand it and complex enough that we can study it every single day for a lifetime and still be amazed by it every single day. You know what's so beautiful and amazing about the Bible is that as you read through it, story after story, through each individual book, like like we did with the book of Joshua, you see these great storylines and themes and it teaches about life and it points us to Jesus. But what is also simultaneously happening is that God is not just painting one picture in each of these uh, in each of the Bible book of the Bible. No, He's actually painting multiple pictures together, all at the same time, and they all kind of connect throughout the entire Bible. And if we only walk through books of the Bible and never stopped to zoom out and look at these pictures, these other pictures that God is painting, we'd miss some of these other incredible pictures. And so again, just imagine us on our helicopter ride landing down into these different books and we're picking up these little puzzle pieces as we go. And these puzzle pieces are going to connect and they're going to show us God's beauty in a special way because it's painting another picture that we'll see. And if you're a skeptic to Christianity or just skeptical of the Bible, I think today should be really intriguing because today is the day we pull out stories that don't really fit the mold for moralistic religion. You know, these are the stories that moralistic religion would kind of sweep under the rug and hide and try to ignore them, which tells us that religious moralism doesn't quite drive with the Bible. And also, we look at multiple stories like this, and we start to realize these aren't the type of stories you'd make up and just kind of add to a holy book that people would then be willing to die for if they weren't true. And we got multiple stories written by multiple authors, authors over thousands of years that individually, they just look like a big old mess by themselves. But when they're put together, they paint a beautiful picture of God. Y'all, New City, the Bible, it's a true masterpiece. Like it's far too complex to be woven together by the minds of men. So as we begin our journey through the Bible, using the women of the genealogy as our guide, we're going to land down in Genesis 38. 
Okay, but before we do that, I want us to kind of get in our helicopter uh, where we started last week in Genesis 17 and 18. I know last week we saw Sarah, which was the wife of Abraham. They then had Isaac at 99 years old, which they then kind of laughed about, of course. And as the story continues on our helicopter ride through the book of Genesis, y'all just listen to the craziness of this, of all that happened. We're going to fly over and just observe the wildness of the book of Genesis. So Isaac, Abraham's, Abraham and Sarah's son, married a lady named Rebekah. They had two sons, which were Jacob and Esau. Jacob, the younger brother, stole Esau's birthrights for his oldest privileges, but that's just a crazy story in itself. And then Jacob, the guy who stole Esau's blessing, he had 12 sons from four different women. He had two different wives who were Rachel and Leah, who just so happened to be sisters, which happened through another scandal, like their dad somehow tricked, uh, tricked Jacob into marrying both of them. Like I'm telling you, the Bible, it's more scandalous than modern day reality TV. Like it is just pure craziness. And then Jacob, he had his first four sons with Leah, which was actually his least favorite wife. That's what the Bible says. And then Rachel, his favorite wife, who was barren, didn't like that. And so she gave him her servant to have two children for them. And then Leah, she was barren and gave her servant to Jacob for the next two kids. And then Leah had two more sons and a daughter. And then Rachel, his favorite wife, finally had two sons, Joseph, and then later Benjamin. So if your head is spinning, essentially God made a promise to Abraham and Sarah and carried it to Isaac and now Jacob. And then Jacob had 12 sons and a daughter through four different women. And they get, 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 get this. Those sons, they didn't like Joseph, one of their youngest brothers. And so they stripped him naked, threw him into a ditch and sold him into slavery. And then one of those, bro- and then the one that talked the other brothers into selling their brother Joseph was Leah's fourth son, Judah, which is our guy for today, where we land in Genesis chapter 38. So if I lost you at any point along the way, that's okay, because the point is, y'all, Jesus' family tree, it's just scandalous. Y'all, New City, New City the Bible, it's, it's wild. Just go and read the book of Genesis, and you'll find out real quick why Jesus needed to come down to earth. Y'all, Jesus, uh, Christmas, it doesn't start in the cradle. No, it, started in the, it starts in the garden. It starts in Genesis chapter 3, when sin entered into the world. So here today, we see sin continuing to infiltrate humanity in our first story in Genesis 38, seeing number one, Judah's scandal with Tamar. But what's interesting about Genesis chapter 38 is that it's like the story of the, it's like the kind of the other stories of the women in the genealogy. They're all kind of side stories. They're like like those puzzle pieces, beautifully placed to see God's bigger picture of God's grand purposes. Because what we begin to see in Genesis 37 is this scandal of Jacob's son, Joseph, being sold into slavery by his brothers, which is, again, it's a major, this is a major storyline at the end of Genesis that runs all the way to Genesis chapter 50. But Genesis chapter 38, where we are today, is this like seemingly random side story with Judah and Tamar that we'll see is just not so random. And so I want you to hang with me here for about seven minutes as I just kind of read and tell this story. And y'all listen, because this story, it's wild, okay? It's story time. All right, Genesis 38. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her. And she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived yet again, again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in 
Chezeb when she bore him. Okay, so Judah, the guy that conceived, that convinced his brothers to sell their younger brother and get rid of him, he left town and went to a Can- this Canaanite region, which was actually a big no-no. Like he was, li- he was living in complete rebellion in this moment. Like it was crystal clear that the Canaanite region was off limits. And while he was there, he went a little wild and had three sons out of wedlock. And for time's sake, we're not going to read the whole story, but those sons, they grew up in Judah. He took a wife for his oldest son named Ur, and that wife's name was Tamar, which is the lady that we're looking at today. Well, this oldest son, Ur, he was wicked and he died. So Judah, now the dad, wanted to carry on the family tree, family name, uh, tried to get his next son to carry out his family duties and have a baby with his brother's wife. Like this was the cultural tradition. Well, his second son was selfish uh, and used her and never fully fulfilled his duties. It's pretty graphic if you want to go read it for yourself. And so his second son, he died because he was also wicked. And Judah was like, well, I don't want my third son, Sheila, to die. So he never gave Tamar to Sheila. And we're just going to ignore the fact that he named, uh, they named their son Sheila uh, and, keep, and keep moving. Well, time passed and Judah's baby mama, Shua, she died And Tamar saw he wasn't going to give her to his last son uh, in marriage. And she knew that was a threat to her lineage. It was a threat to her well-being. And so she goes on the side of the road, okay? She She gets out of her widower clothes and she dresses like a prostitute with her face covered. And Judah, the dad, sees her and asks her if he can go into her. And of course, she knows this is her father-in-law, knowing his history. And so she says, you need to give me something. And he offers her a goat. And so he, she asked for his signet, a cord and a staff in exchange for the goat later, uh, which would have been like kind of handing her the, his driver's license to her. And, and so he gives it to her and they go away for the night. And then she, and then they, she conceived and gets pregnant. Well, Judah, he later sends the goat. He promised her with a friend and exchange it back for this thing that, that he gave her for the things that he gave her. Well, they can't find her anywhere. And this is what it says next about his friend, starting in verse 22 in Genesis 38. This is wild. Well, this story is wild. So we returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own or she or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. So they couldn't find her. So they gave up and then time passes and look what it says next in verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral moreover. She is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. And so at this point, Judah still has no clue he got his daughter-in-law pregnant. And I'm not exactly sure how that works, but this happens often in the Bible. And Judah, he wants to burn his daughter-in-law, Tamar, because of her immorality. Like, are you seeing how backwards all of this is? Like, Judah... This man who was living a life of complete rebellion, he sold his brother into slavery, left the ways of his family, had three sons out of wedlock, gets what he thought was a prostitute. He tries to cover it up, and then now he sees that his daughter-in-law is now pregnant, and he wants to have her burned for her immorality. I think it's fair to say that hypocrite is the appropriate word for Judah. And look what it says next in verse 25. And she was being brought out. She sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. So Tamar, in this moment, shows the cord, the signet and the staff, like his driver's license, basically, that Judah, her father-in-law, like he gave to her, like he slept with her. And then it kind of all clicked. 
he just realized that he impregnated his daughter-in-law and he tried to have her burned to death. Again, the Bible, it's wild. Look what it says next as the story kind of ends. And then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. And he did not know her again. And as the story continues, they find out that it wasn't one baby, but two. They had twins, birthing Perez and Zerah. New city Judah, as we see here in Genesis 38, he was a rebellious, hypocritical, selfish womanizer that had twins with his daughter-in-law and sold his half-brother into slavery. Again, I think it's fair to say that Judah was not exactly the model we choose for our kids to follow. And you know what's bizarre with all of this? Do you know which brother received the royal blessing later in Genesis chapter 49? Like the greatest blessing from their dad? It wasn't Joseph that was sold into slavery by his brothers and heroically saved his family from famine that has about 10 chapters of storyline to his name in the book of Genesis. No, it was this guy. Judah. Judah received the greatest blessing. And we read that and we think, what? Like, how did that happen? He was the fourth son. This was supposed to be for the firstborn. Let's just look at a small portion of this blessing that Judah received from his father in Genesis 49, right after 10 chapters of that storyline with Joseph as he was sold into slavery. Genesis 49, 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hands shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Out of all the brothers... Hypocritical, womanizing Judah received the royal blessing. And again, it's like, what? Verse 10, it says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. And it's also, uh, the Judah, to Judah will be the obedience of all the people. In verse 9, Judah, he's described as a lion's club. He's crouched as a lion. Who dares rouse him? And what we know from Matthew's genealogy is that Jesus came from the line of Judah with Tamar as his mother, as the mother. New City, Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah that's talked about in Revelations 5 that comes from this storyline. The royal blessing was passed on to Judah and ended with King Jesus. And we'll talk more about this today, but for now, I want us to think and ask, why in the world was Judah picked to pass on the royal blessing? Again, he's a womanizing hypocrite. And yes, Joseph, he was also greatly blessed, but he didn't have the royal blessing. He didn't get the same blessing that Judah got. So why did Judah, the fourth-born son, get the royal blessing? Well, we see in Genesis 49 that Reuben, the firstborn, he lost his firstborn blessing because of his actions with a woman. But then we think, well, Judah, he wasn't much better. And then his next two oldest, Simeon and Levi, they lost their blessing because they killed a bunch of people. But Judah, the next in line, why did he get it? Again, why did the selfish, brother-selling hypocrite receive the best blessing? Well, if we read in Genesis chapter 43 and 44, we'd see Judah, he turned his life back to the Lord. And when his family was in trouble, he was the one that was willing to sacrifice his life for his family. Judah, when his family was in trouble, in a famine, unable to eat, uh, he was willing to go in and be the substitute for his other brother, for his youngest brother. 
in order to save his family and provide food and carry on their heritage. Judah received the firstborn blessing, not because of his perfect record, but simply because he turned back to the Lord in his ways. New City, the story of Judah and Tamar, yes, it's a scandalous story, marking a very low point in their family history, but it also marks a picture of redemption. For us today, this should be shockingly encouraging and hopeful because if God can redeem Judah and use him for incredible things, New City, God can do the same thing for us with those around us. I mean, AJ said this last week, and I want to say it again. Nobody, absolutely nobody is too far gone. Nobody is out of God's redeeming grace. And church, this is such good news. But the kicker is we must, and those in our life must, first turn back to the Lord. Because God won't redeem anybody that has turned away from him, that hasn't given their life over to him. We must first place our faith in Jesus. You know, when, we, when people see Tamar in the genealogy of Matthew, yes, it's both shocking, and it also shows that God uses broken people with broken histories and a lot of baggage for his purposes. And to that we say, praise the Lord. Amen. It shows us that God's grace looks past our imperfections, while also showing us we must have our heart and life turned over to the Lord. And when Judah turned back to the Lord, he received the royal blessing that his older brothers missed because of their disobedience. Again, I don't know where you are in your life journey. Maybe you're here and you know you're living in rebellion like Judah was when he was running and he was going to a city he wasn't supposed to be in. I want to call you to let you today be the day when you mark the bottom of your rebellion. Judah's turning point came with his interaction with Kamar when everything came to light. Let today be the day when you say, no, I'm going to turn back to the Lord. I'm going to give my life to Jesus. The other option is to be like his older three brothers and simply never seek redemption and miss out on the blessings that God may have for you. No, I'm not saying your life will absolutely get better because it might not. But when we turn to the Lord day in and day out, we find our greatest blessing in Jesus. And there is so much peace and grace and mercy that is found just in resting in the love of Christ. Because when our life gets out of order or off kilter or out of balance balance in Jesus, we always have a firm foundation to come back to knowing that Jesus, he will always be with us. Or just maybe you are following Jesus today and you're on the other side of redemption and you, you call Jesus Lord. I want to call you to simply rejoice in the grace that God has shown you for blessing you and saving you in spite of your past sin and rebellion. Because church, that's grace. We can't forget that the same grace Jesus saves us, saved us with is the same grace that he changes us with. We need God's daily grace to get back up when we get knocked down. And this is all scandalous grace that doesn't make sense. And we're going to see more of this. But before we get too far into God's scandalous grace, I want us to hop back on our helicopter and look quickly at one more story of another lady in Jesus' lineage, and it's the story of Bathsheba, seeing number two, David's scandal with Bathsheba. This one's going to be much quicker. If you look in Matthew's genealogy to kind of help us fly over the Old Testament, the order is Tamar, who we just looked at, Rahab, who we saw in the book of Joshua, and then Ruth, who we're going to look at next week, and then Bathsheba with Matthew's genealogy. You know, interestingly enough, uh, it doesn't mention her name. It actually just says Uriah's wife. And I find it interesting because it mentions the other ladies' names, but it doesn't mention Bathsheba's name, 
which I think helps us have some clarity on where the scandal lies. Because for whatever reason, Bathsheba is often thought of as David's mistress and a seducer, which is just totally not fair. The scandal with Bathsheba, it's mostly on David. It's not so much centered around Bathsheba, but with David and a soldier named Uriah. That's what the genealogy kind of points out for us. And just to get us up to speed on where we, where, where we are, because we just fast-forwarded like several hundred years in history, I'm going to do like a quick 30-second flyover of Judah to David. So just buckle up for about 30 seconds. Okay, so remember, we saw Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the first book in the Bible. Jacob had 12 sons, one of which was Judah, who received that royal blessing we just looked at. Well, fast forward... Israel goes into slavery for 400 years. They make it out with the Exodus. They wander around in the wilderness for 40 years. God gives them the promised land in Joshua. And then as, as we see, we start to see a crazy cycle of really bad kings and judges that we're going to go through at some point. And then in 1 and 2 Samuel, we see the rise of King David, who comes from Judah's family line. And so Ju Judah was David's like great, great, like eight times great grandfather. I think that's right. And David, he becomes a great military king for God's people. And then we zero in now and land in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12, where we come to pick up another piece of that puzzle. Look at 2 Samuel 11, starting in verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servant with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof of a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. So King David, who was known for winning and defeating many military battles, he decides to stay home in his king's house and he sees a beautiful woman bathing on the roof. And what did King David do? Did he turn and walk away? No. Look what it says next. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So he doesn't walk away. No, he, he asked someone about her. And he, find out, he found out that it was Uriah's wife, who was one of his best soldiers. So what did David do in this moment? Did he walk away? Did he get some sense? No. Look what it says next. So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness, and she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David used his kingly powers and took her, and he had an affair with her, and they had a baby. So David, a man known to be a man after God's own heart, took his best soldier's wife and impregnated her. And so what did he do next? Did he, did he come clean? Well, no, as the story continues. David essentially put Uriah in a place where he would be killed in war. So he turned on an honorable man, Uriah, and he had him killed. And then David gets rebuked in chapter 12, and their child tragically dies. So David had mistake after mistake after mistake, and he kept digging his hole deeper. And again, maybe, just maybe you've been there. Or you know someone who's been there. Well, today we have good news because you know what David did in chapter 12 after this long string of massive failures? He turned back to the Lord. 
It says he fasted and sought God on behalf of the child. He laid all night on the ground. He had people come around him. He believed God could heal his child, showing great faith. Yes, like David made a series of big mistakes, but he turned back to the Lord. He could have kept spiraling and covering up and digging his hole deeper, but no, he eventually turned back to the Lord. And then look at chapter 12, verse 24 in 2 Samuel. It says, Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and went into her and lay with her and she bore a son and she called his name Solomon and the Lord loved him so Solomon one of the wealthiest kings in Israel with the biggest kingdom of God's people who wrote most of the book of Proverbs he came from parents that met through an affair covered up by a murder and yet both David and Solomon just like Judah they had rocky histories with mistresses and sexual immorality with cover-up and hate in their heart And yet God had his son Jesus to be born from this line. Scandal after scandal. And again, we need to ask why. Because God wanted to make it abundantly clear that Jesus did not come because of the obedience of God's people, but rather because of their disobedience. New City, the scandals that led to Jesus' cradle are the same scandals that led led Jesus to the cross. Deception, cover-up, hypocrisy, abuse of power, and on and on we could go. Again, I don't know how you came in today or what you came in on your heart. Maybe it's a heavy heart filled with shame. Maybe overcome by continuously falling short. Maybe you're just apathetic about God, kind of like Judah was. And you don't care to live your life for the Lord. And it's, le- it's led you or is leading you down a path that likely won't end well. Or maybe you're just caught up in something like King David was, with multiple opportunities to say no and step away, but you keep saying yes when you need to say no and walk away. Again, I don't know what it is, but as we saw with Judah's brothers, the oldest three, they never turned back to the Lord. But Judah, he turned back to the Lord. Church, the cross that Jesus bled and died on, he died and rose from the grave so that we could turn to him for eternal life and also in our everyday life. Church, this is grace to us. This is good news. Because in Jesus, there is an endless supply of second chances. Yes, Jesus came from a scandalous history, but this scandalous history highlights, number three, Jesus' scandalous grace. Again, I don't know where you are today. I don't know what what is weighing on you, but I know one thing for sure. Nothing is too crazy for the Lord. Nothing is too far for God to redeem. If God can redeem Judah and bless him immensely to be used for God's purposes, I have no doubt in my mind that God can do the same for each and every one of us. Like if God can turn my life around and turn, and turn your life around, he can also turn your friend's life around. And it's not because we earned it. It's not because we're good enough or it's not because we're moral enough, but because God's love and grace for us, it was shown to us at the cross where Jesus was born for the purpose of dying. New City, Jesus came from a rocky family tree, but when Jesus came down to earth, when Christmas came, he came to bring a new family. This is Christmas. It marks redemption and a fresh start. And you know, it's not uh, that this new family, that would be much better. We still have sin in our lives. But this new family that Jesus would create, which is us, the church, you know what Jesus brought for this new family? He brought us grace. New City, I have always loved Christmas. As a kid, I always, it was always my favorite holiday. I mean, all sorts of gifts and Christmas parties and Christmas movies and Christmas songs, all of it. 
But what we cannot miss, and we have to continually remind ourselves year after year, is that our greatest gift, year after year, it's always Jesus. Because when Jesus came onto the scene in Matthew 1, he brought the gift of grace. Y'all, we can have all the fun and excitement and cheer and get everything we'd ever want, but if we, haven't got, if we don't have God's grace, we're stuck in religious moralism that condemns and erodes. You see, being able to say that God's grace is always greater than our sin and that we receive that grace and forgiveness by simply believing in Jesus, y'all, that is just way too simple. Like this is dumbfoundingly simple and yet it's our free gift. Our redemption is marked by the free gift of grace that Jesus secured for us at the cross. We're forgiven and given hope and redemption, not because of us, but because Jesus came down to earth. Again, this is Christmas. Jesus came to bring God's grace to the world. And when we celebrate Christmas, we're celebrating grace entering the world. And our response in celebration to this gift of grace entering the world, it's not to go and watch Hallmark Christmas movies and drink peppermint mochas. Which, like, let me say, I do enjoy these things. But no, our proper response is just to first sit in God's grace, to marvel at it, to be in awe at it, and then that's take that same grace to the world around us. Grace entered the world through Jesus as a free gift to us, and we now take it as a free gift to the world. This is Christmas. Y'all, we don't take up a year-end offering for global missions and church planting and kingdom advancement to put a further strain on our pockets. No, we take up a kingdom advancing offering because this is the exact point of Christmas. Jesus brought grace to the world, and we, in response, take it to the world. So we then just align our entire life with this purpose, which includes our resources. You know, one of the reasons we have a really high goal is because it's going to take every single person going all in to reach it. It's going to take an all-hands-on-deck effort to give generously and extravagantly to be able to give over $20,000 for kingdom advancement. You know, $20,000 is an all-hands-on-deck, everybody-involved number. But our $35,000 number, our ultimate goal, no, I don't know how it's going to happen. <laughs> I really don't. It's going to take what Paul calls hilarious generosity in 2 Corinthians. Like people just giving amounts of money that just put you in disbelief. And you know what the motivation is that causes us to do things like that? It's not doing it out of duty because, or because we're supposed to. No, our motivation to hilarious generosity is God's hilarious grace that just puts us in disbelief because of how good it is. New City, we give out of a response to what God has given us, and God has shown us grace that just puts us in awe and disbelief. And so what do we do? We give back in measures that puts us in awe and disbelief so the world can know the same incredible grace. But again, our first step in the entire process it's to just first and sit and marvel at God's just daily grace in our life. Y'all, there's several action steps out of today, but that's the biggest one. Like, just sit and be in awe of God's grace in our life. And then out of that all, God calls us to lay everything down to take the same grace to others. New City, to end our time, after we looked at Judah and Tamar and David and Bathsheba, seeing God's scandalous grace, uh, that then propels us to send the same grace to the world. 
You know, I find it fitting to read Revelation 5 that ties it all together. This is that finished picture that we were collecting those puzzle pieces for. This is what it says. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll in its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are, which are the seven spirits of God sent out to all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And we had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, speaking of Jesus, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you, Jesus, were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. New City, that's the picture God has given us to run towards. People from all over the world falling on their faces, worshiping because Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, In the root of David, he brought grace to the world. And that grace that Jesus shows us is for the whole world to be in all of, for the entire world to know that God's grace is greater than our sin. New City, this is Christmas. Grace came down to earth to live and die so that we can be in the awe and disbelief of this scandalous grace. And what do we do in response? We take it to the world, laying everything down as an act of worship. Let's pray. God, your word is a true masterpiece. From Genesis to Revelation, your heart and desire is for people all over the world to worship you. And we're able to worship you and be in awe of you because you came down to us as a man that was born to die showing scandalous grace to all those who call out to him. God, we are all so desperate day in and day out to just be in constant need of grace. But God, you're so good to us to continually come to us, even in mistake after mistake, and yet you say, come to me and sit. God, we pray that we would be uh, just in awe of your grace today. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.